Welcome, everyone. This is A Brief History of Power. I'm Colonel Willie Grills here with Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz, and we're going to begin a new series, America Underground. We're going to start in the 50s, see how America got here. We're going to look at American power structures and American pop culture, see how they are intertwined. We're going to go all the way up to the 70s, maybe even into the 90s. Why are all you millennials the way that you are? Why does Gen X not matter? We're going to find all these this out. <laughs> we don't care about Nirvana. It's really not that good. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> they, I mean, it's not like they do either, right? So, yeah, they don't care about anything except, you know, there's perpetually in a state of outrage. So, figure that one out. They're all old enough to retire in their Winnebago's, but they, you know, there's they're they're still, you know, rocking that smells like teen spirit. Like they're mad at their dad, you know. They got their Utah jazz caps backwards in their suburban garages. Really edgy. Um, (laughs) The Discord has now exploded. Um, Anyway, so Adam, you're wearing a for those for the folks uh, listening at home. Adam's in a nice cable knit sweater. Uh, How is the weather out in Denver? Yeah, uh, I was telling you before we started recording. It it is pretty great. It's like 55 in the morning wear my sweater, have my coffee on the porch. Then it goes up to, you know, 73 and stops there. It's pretty nice. Well, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Well, mean, meanwhile, we're recording in the morning and it is in the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I refuse to believe you don't actually live in Florida. So that's <laughs> right. Yeah. I live in the Florida that I can, that I have at home, you know, the Florida <laughs> I can afford. <laughs> right. And we don't we don't have Ron DeSantis. We have Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Make of that what you will. <laughs> oh, no. One of my favorite Huckabee stories belongs to her dad. And while they were remodeling the governor's mansion, he was living in a triple wide. And that's uh, you know that's that's just very comforting to me to know. So, I mean, there is something you know redemptive about that story arc. So right. <laughs> so maybe I too, with my double wide, can get a Fox News program one day. <laughs> Very possibly, <laughs> you know, but the risk of death by virtue of living in Arkansas is just so it's astronomically true. high for any. And look, and look, we both know that I'm really just jockeying for that appearance on the war room. And right. um, you, you do, know, you want to be on war room before you disappear mysteriously. So, right. I mean, Steve Bannon, you know, have we ever been seen in the same room at the same time? That's all I'm saying. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you know, and speaking of CD underground. Yeah, exactly. Let's uh, let's get started here. You know, the 50s, the 50s kind of, before we begin, I want a disclaimer here. This is not like the meme that's going around today where you have the great, you know, 50s propaganda art, but some leftist has put captions on all the family like, oh, I'm I'm on antidepressants to function and I'm secretly gay. Uh, It's not one of those things. You know, there there are very positive things out of the 50s, and I do think that the family unit, by and large, is stronger. But we're starting in the 50s because a lot of America's expansion and decline begin in the 50s properly. And right. so, yeah, exactly. You know, so while the superstructure that's governing us during that time has a lot of issues, that's not necessarily, at least in the 50s, that really won't infect the American family until the 60s and then it just it's all downhill from from there yeah i i think a lot of hopelessness that people have gets induced by the assertion that they get from movies about the 50s and 
memes like the one that you referenced where you know the mom is on valium and the dad is has you know is an alcoholic who beats his family all the time and you know and the basic idea there is that it was always hopeless yeah there was always endless dysfunction endless misery on a personal level and the 50s are very much unlike today in that the seeds of the things that we now experience on a personal level every day pretty much all of us in various ways are being planted, but they're not really growing in any in most people's personal lives at that point. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, when you talk about nostalgia, when you talk about you know those sorts of those sorts of things, yeah, there there are some blinders there, but that doesn't mean that certain positive things about the past aren't true. Right. You know, it's was there ever a truer meme? Than you know the picture of the '80s bedroom with all of this neon and whatever, but the reality is just wall to wall wood paneling. <laughs> yeah, I, I live the wood paneling, so yeah, that that's that's all real. So if I want to be completely enclosed in wood paneling, you know that's my prerogative. And you you that, are a free American, yeah, allegedly, that's right. even in Denver. Wood paneling supremacy, you know, that's the official position. We're, we're going to pick up a new sponsor from that, by the way. If I if I knew the name of a wood paneling company, <laughs> business has gone downhill since about 1988 for them, but it's about to pick up. Right, yeah, I feel it in my bones. Yeah. So, all right. Well, we really have two two threads, two things we're going to talk about. So, yeah. American power, which is essentially the military industrial complex and all things related to it, and American pop culture, and we're going to see that by design those two things go hand in hand. Right. And so are we going to sound like a, an, a, an Estes Perkle 1960s fundamentalist Baptist documentary or movie? Absolutely. Yeah. At times 100% because, because it's, it's the assertion of design that is key here. If you, if you want to see, and we, I think we talked about maybe even last time, if you want to see changes in history, changes in societies, changes in how people live their lives, the same way you might see weather, like it, it's just kind of happening to you, then it's hard to see how and why military industrial complex is intertwined with pop culture. And this is much more clearly sketched out that that design, that interconnection for the late 60s and the 70s, and we'll get there. But the reason that we're starting in the 50s is because that is when American power does something that it hasn't before. And we've talked about this in various places on the show over the years is that whereas after all of our other wars, we try something maybe kind of nuts or we're not going to try it again for 50 years and then we drop it. So we have a personal income tax during the civil war or we have mass mobilization and a draft for the first world war. After the Second World War, lots of men demobilize, and a big part of the 50s, really of memory of the 50s, not so much of pop culture exactly, and certainly not of power, but of what people recall is dad getting out of the army and then using the GI Bill to go to school or to buy a house in the suburbs or both. Mm -hmm. what, what we don't do is scrap everything that we built up to fight that war. And that, that is what is so unusual is that whether you look at the National Security, Security Act of 1947 or you look at things that endured footings 
bases that we didn't draw down nearly as much as we had in the previous world war is that American power decides to abide after the second world war. We have accepted a new role in the world and we will be the free or democratic or what or liberal in a broad sense of that word hegemon. So we will rule over Europe and we will rule over the rest of the world in the name of freedom or of democracy or whatever. But we're but in order to do that, we can't draw down our own power structure. So what President Eisenhower is going to call near the end of the 50s, originally the military congressional industrial complex that then gets edited in delivery to military industrial complex, which is a little safer since you have to look at congressmen, right? As you say these things, that the military industrial complex is going to be built up and that war footings for suburban Southern California or various bases throughout the United States are not really going to go away. They're going to shrink for a few years and then they're going to be built up again. So what we're looking at is just a, as far as power goes, is a really unusual, really actually unprecedented situation of military power, political power, diplomatic power having been built up and then continuing to be nurtured, improved upon, refined, and not just taken away as we had after the Civil War, which affected a broader percentage of our domestic population, and as recently as the First World War, you know, a couple decades before the 1950s. Right. And this episode won't focus on World War II, but we come out of World War II as a superpower. Our manufacturing base is going to be very strong. Yeah, right. And that's going to feed directly into what we're talking about. What kind of industries are we supporting? We are supporting domestic industry, automobile manufacturing. I mean, any manufacturer. I mean, it's still yep. largely domestic at this point. Yep, no It's question. going to continue to boom. American products are going to be seen as premium. And so our overall view of America and Americanism is going to be very positive, very strong. And I think for a lot of people, then that becomes, okay, so we need to spread America abroad. And in order to do that, America needs to be very strong at home. So how does it do it? Through strong manufacturing, but also through a very strong military presence and all of the window dressing that goes with that. So that's going to feed into both the appearance of strength, and we're going to begin to secede power to various corporations, various industries, and various ideologies that before this we wouldn't have. Certain groups are going to get power that wouldn't. And we 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 might think of, you know, things like, oh, okay, so you're talking about universities in the 60s. No, not not necessarily. We're talking about the precursor to things like Halliburton or or even things just as generic as the American military. You'll see the emergence of groups like the CIA. And at that point, once those groups rise to power and grow to become the beast that they are, uh, then we can begin to talk about pop culture. Because once you realize, especially once you get into the 60s, just how much how much involvement your government or governmental agencies or people with influence the government have at the artistic level, it all begins to make a lot of sense. And so, um, so where should we begin then? 
So let's let's talk about how they're intertwined. And you could just take a, a case study of the Office of Strategic Services, which is the precursor to the CIA sort of paramilitary organization has functionaries from various branches of the military during the Second World War. The OSS is going to get drawn down. It's suspect for some, especially regular army officers throughout the Second World War. It gets drawn down, but it doesn't really go away. And one of the tactics here is that names will change, but functions will remain and then increase. And it's important to know as we go into the 50s that the OSS is figuring out how to, particularly in addition to the, you know, what we now call black ops kinds of things about which people write books that that still get bought by people that were buying Stephen Ambrose books 20 years ago. In addition to that, and with much more lasting effect, the OSS is very interested in what gets called psychological warfare. And what they're going to begin to figure out, and then as they go through a couple years of turmoil about their existence, but by 1947 are enshrined, really, as a central intelligence agency, is a, a let's say, sharpening of the techniques of psychological warfare, because what they understand is that it's much more effective, not, not only cheaper in terms of men and materiel, but it's much more effective. You can achieve your purposes on a, let's say, broad population much better if you are able to control their thoughts or their emotions or their reactions. That's that's a much better strategy for victory than if you are trying to, you know, basically win in some sort of conventional form of warfare. That is going to play into both where the alumni of the OSS from the Second World War go, which is into places like marketing and advertising in New York and into universities and into the burgeoning field of psychology, which is going to undergird a lot of what is then called personnel, what would now be called human resources. So that's that has to do with people's everyday lives in these giant corporations. You know, you, you said these, these are going to get bigger and they're still being fostered at this point. Well, how do they figure out who they want? Well, they're going to they're going to ask a psychologist to do that for them. In addition to that, they're going into the military industrial complex proper through research that is going to continue. And this is something that is very much unlike the First World War, where you get chemical biological warfare in the First World War. And then officially, everyone is trying to swear off it in the 1920s and 1930s. We even try to swear off naval armaments. I mean, something that seems sort of conventional and, and not innocuous, but understandable and comprehensible. And, and all the creepy stuff we we officially say we're going to leave aside during the 1920s and 30s. Yeah, we forget, and we've talked about this on another show, about just how different the world is before World War One. Yep, yeah. And, and of course, in the, in the Westward Expansion episodes, we talk about, you know, the technology of the Civil War not keeping up with, say, the medical practices. But you get up to World War One. I, I mean, 
just just do a quick study on baseball players and mustard gas. I mean, you've got enough to kind of understand oh, what the heck's going on. That one still hurts. Yeah. And so then you get to World War. And I mean, think about World War One. They're still using mounted cavalry at that time. Yeah. You know, we're using horses and, and dropping mustard gas. Right. Okay. So you get to the Second World War, ostensibly ended by nukes. You know, that could be debated. But, you know, for all intents and purposes, dropping the atom bomb. I know there are probably some listeners who don't believe that that happened, but let's just, for the sake of discussion, <laughs> let's say it did. And uh, sometimes I can't even keep all the all the theories. I'm not going to call them conspiracy. I can't. I can't even keep them straight. You know, they don't even occur to me. At all. Right. And so, you know, broad ground warfare outside of the Korean conflict. I mean, of course, you have it Vietnam, but just how much of the war is cold? How much of the war that we're fighting is is fought? You know, in the Gillette marketing room. That we don't think about right. how much of just basic advertising in the 50s is related to we're not russians we're not commies and what does that look like we borrow art from propaganda posters coming out of world war ii and at least the style anyway and that continues up until the late 50s and early 60s before things start to get really avant-garde um, and it's to project a particular american image it's it's to project a certain type of power that we now possess. And so the corporate boardroom uh, becomes very much the same as the OSS operation room. And if you think about advertising, it's it's relatively easy to see how these sorts of things are going to come home to roost eventually. Because if the poster is convincing you in 1943 to plant a certain kind of garden or recycle your car tires or whatever they're trying to do or justify the fact that your son got, you know, half his arm blown off in the Pacific or whatever's happening, right? Now that that's going to be a permanent fixture of American life, you also have to realize how many people's lives changed drastically during the Second World War, whether they live in a completely different part of the country or mom went to work or grandma went to work, things that also are basically unprecedented in American life. All well, of I mean, the, yeah. Yeah. I mean, think of the other, th another thing that people often forget that the fifties brings us and it's a, it's directly related to world war two is our diet changes. Yep. We're now eating differently. It's the yep. rise of processed foods, right? You know, you get hooked on spam in, in world war two and you bring it home now. And we don't think about this. Yeah. Everything. Mar every margarine. Yeah. A curse be and, upon it, Marjorie. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if you don't think that that's a divine judgment, and we didn't rediscover butter till like three years ago, I know in America. In America, right? If it if it weren't for a British man named Rog Nationalist, we, we'd probably all still be eating <laughs> margarine, right? Yeah, we'd all be buying the thirty eight cents a stick blue bonnet and pretending that it tastes normal. <laughs> don't eat margarine, folks. That's um. If you, if you get nothing else from this podcast, it's please don't put that in your body. Or on your cooktops. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I think that the the question of design is not design, and, and this is this is really important. Whether you think that nuclear weapons are into real or not, right? Is that the the question of design? Here's how it works: is that it doesn't have to work through one specific guy whom we discover. Because the problem is the scale of these issues and the amount of number of people that they affect preclude there being one guy. So I can't say, oh, it was 
the first governor of the New York Federal Reserve, or it was FDR, or that's not that's not how this works. What you're going to find are multiple intertwined people, right? Who are going to then filter into various aspects of American life, which are now all living in relationship to a government that is not going to go. It's not ever. It still hasn't gone back to the size that it was in 1935, or yep. not to speak of 1925. And and this is a pattern you see across everything. Everything gets bigger and more corporatized. So you see it at the church level. Oh yeah, the corporatization of of denominations happens at the same time, and and all part of the same spirit. Our own synod is an example of this. Yeah, and I I think at the time it it felt or it seemed amazing because we had not been personally devastated economically the way that Europe had, the way obviously that Japan had in the Second World War, and everything seemed like it was going to get better. Yeah. Um, and that and that was that was so true in the church, right? So the idea we now look back fondly, and I I this meme lives inside my own wife's head of, you know, they they had they had what is it? Council of Presidents was it even called that back then? Meetings, you know, the the muckety mucks of the Missouri Synod would meet at the kitchen table of the Synod president, right? Yeah, <laughs> or, or on his front porch, right? You know, yeah, and see, these are you know things that my wife can't fathom because her people are still in Panama at the time, but they are the direct result of something we're talking about here. Because what's America's first great colonial experiment? It's the Panama Canal. Yeah, it's the canals up, and. um Apologies to the Indians, but our first true, you know, proper <laughs> colonial experience is Panama. Yeah, I know we had a few little things, but this is the one that matters. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I was waiting for you to say something like that. <laughs> yeah, and so the the idea that okay, well, you know what would be really good is if we just stayed at the kitchen table. It's it's hard to understand how much optimism and sense of boundless possibility is wrapped up in being an American in, say, 1949. Well, I mean, or, and it translates into stupid financial decisions, right? So it becomes, yeah. well, it's not respectable for a church not to have a mortgage. And then, yeah. and then you're, and then 20 years later, it's the rise of the 30-year note on a home. Yeah. When in World War II, it was so common to see, and this is, this is true, uh, you know, five-year mortgages. Five-year mortgages, 10-year mortgages, and a yeah. lot of people, especially in urban areas, renting. Yeah. And now we have moved. Well, we're coming back into the rent era, even though it's prohibitively expensive. <laughs> right. But, but, but uh, it's 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 just a very interesting phenomenon where bigger becomes the sign of American. Sorry, Texans. But America is, is big and um, we want a big overarching power structure everywhere. Yeah. And while I can't prove this, this has just occurred to me right now. I think it has to also happen at the local church level, not just with mortgages, but with the rise of so-called church councils and other things, and the rise of forty-two church offices for a church of a hundred people. Yeah, I mean, I I can I can prove that if you want me to. I mean, please, that, yeah. that is that is undoubtedly true. There is a very influential book by a man whom we respect a great deal, but in this way, he's sort of part of the problem. Is called Organized for Action, 1959, yeah, Concordia yeah. Publishing House. Yeah, is Guido Merkins because he becomes at Concordia San Antonio for the Lutherans. He becomes the epitome of what it is to be 
a good parish pastor. That's the model for every other parish. And what you're going to do is you are going to have endless amounts of committees and activities. And the pastor is the guy that he's the ringmaster and he's there for all the acts. And so he, this is where you get the pastor who never sees his family. Yeah. Because why would he? Because he is busy. You know, I mean, you can, you can go watch Mad Men or, they could have made a show about a Missouri Synod Parish pastor, but the idea that well, he never did. sees it was, his fa- It was called Fargo. And oh, no. I was waiting. I was like, <laughs> this is going to be good. The idea that he never sees his family because he's busy promoting activity, growth, and so forth at his job, which is divorced from his family. That's that's a commonality of American life as we, as we head into the 50s. Yeah. And you know that that model worked in 1959 because it's pre you know Kansas City Convention when we allowed anyone to vote. Oh, yeah, that's right. That was Kansas City, right? I think uh, so. It, w- it was. It was yeah. uh, Denver. Was it Denver? Well, what yes, do we sir. do in Kansas? I don't know. Maybe I just had Kansas on the brain for previous. Episodes. Are you thinking of Wichita? I might be thinking of Wichita. Yeah. 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 That's a that's a whole other later. I don't know. But... I just go to poor decisions in Kansas, and if I don't go to bleeding Kansas, I go to Kansas City. So. <laughs> That was the that was the last series. This is this is a new series where we're making <laughs> indubitably sunbelt poor decisions. So right. yeah. It's all right though. It's, yeah. it's it's the world we live in. Yeah. So all right. Well, so we've got the the really gray outline there. So let's um, you know, the the 50s though, like I said, it all kind of worked then. Whether there were evil things happening at the top and there were, it still worked because of the way our families functioned, the way our society functioned. Yeah. By the time you get to the end of the 50s, the the cracks are there. And at the societal level, the cracks are starting to appear. And they're going to be exploited in the 60s and 70s. And so one of the first cracks we begin to see, and don't worry, there'll be plenty of time to discuss LSD experiments and other things like that. But you have the rise of teenage outlaws in popular culture. Mm-hmm. You have the rise of rock music. And while I am an Elvis respecter, it, you cannot help but argue that the rise of Elvis, the rise of, you know, certain, how do I put this, subcultures being entwined with American popular culture uh, begins to erode the values that we had previously. Powerful moment on the show, folks, when I was wondering if Colonel Grills would actually admit that Elvis was part of the problem here today. <laughs> right. So you, you don't know what that took him to say that. Out <laughs> right. I want to say yeah. Elvis's handlers were part of the problem. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. And and I, I think that this is something where if you go back and, and here's where we're going to sound like 1960s fundamentalist AM radio is if you go back and you look at differing demographics reactions to Elvis. It's it's much easier to see, especially you you probably need to have kids to do this. Look at the parents' reactions versus the kids' reactions to the way that Elvis was moving his body in public. Mm-hmm. The kids are losing their minds. The parents are actually disgusted by these things. Yeah. And we tend to dismiss that. It's interesting, kind of the way that we're taught to think of the 50s is that we are, whether it's a movie or whether it's a documentary or something, we're kind of taught to experience the 50s vicariously as if we had been teenagers then. Right. Right. And so when you look at the parents' reactions, you're supposed to dismiss that 
as illegitimate, as stupid. The world, you know, see how this goes. The world was always like this. Yeah. Teenagers were always rebelling. Parents always misunderstood them. See how this works. Right. Right. And so when you when you look when you look at that and you don't take at all seriously why any adult objected to Elvis gyrating, you really don't understand what could have possibly been going wrong already back then. Yeah. And those reactions that you see in video footage, they are legitimate and manufactured or not. They're still legitimate and they're not really staged. I mean, these people really are 18 year olds, 16 year olds in in the late fifties are really losing their minds. Yeah. And, and, and dad's there with his Hank snow records. Like (laughs) what, what is, what is happening? You know, my own grandfathers, you know, didn't listen to that. And for liability reasons, I can't say what they called that kind of music on this podcast, but you can you can draw your own conclusions there. <laughs> and 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 it sometimes gets tied up into, well, they were just racist or something like that. You know, that's that's the very negative approach. They didn't yeah. want black influences. But they also didn't want what are basically animalistic influences on their children. Right. And look, they were vindicated. You look at what is played on regular FM radio today. We're a long way from Elvis on Steve Allen or whatever having to wear a tuxedo. Yep. You know, so that he doesn't, you know, enrage um, the parents. You have borderline riots in cities at this time over Elvis. And really, unfortunately for the king, it, it there it is only him that really gets these reactions at this time. There are copies of Elvis that, yeah, they can get people ginned up, but there is something particularly effective about what Elvis Aaron Presley did and could do and can frankly still do to a certain subset of the American population. This is now, this is now just a full 45 minutes on Elvis folks. Sorry. (laughs) It's, it's what the people asked for. So it's fine. Right. It's it's what we want. I mean, do I have a velvet Elvis painting, not 10 feet from me in this very office? Maybe. And uh, you know, it's okay. He was a good American boy, and they took advantage of a of a man of great power and talent. So, yeah, we. I mean, I I think we are just going to officially recommend and and put in the show notes his gospel songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just um, you know, close this episode with "Reach Out to Jesus." We'll be okay. Yeah, I. It, it's it's interesting. Well, okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, no, I mean that, that's actually a good point, though. We bring the Elvis gospel records. It's it's interesting that a lot of his performance approach comes from the nascent Pentecostal church. And the 50s also sees the great expansion of Pentecostalism. Right. We think about it coming up in the 80s, but really it, it begins in the revivalist movements post-World War II, where it spreads to regular American Christianity. Right. Yeah. What I was going to... What I was going to say dovetails with that so well. You mentioned people that are teenagers in the late 1950s. This is where if you want to look at generations and you want to talk about the boomers or whatever, the boomers are in utero in 1955. (laughs) You're you're looking at – okay, so you're looking at the people that make the decisions were probably born before the First World War or around the time of that. The people who are teenagers, who are imbibing these things, who are able to own maybe a car of their own for the first time, these are people who are born in the 30s and 40s. 
So when you're looking at how long did this take or how did this filter down, you need a much longer timeline than the generations with which you're familiar right now. Well, I mean, okay, there's another thing. Okay, were teenagers always going out in the woods and whatever doing things they shouldn't be? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. But the rise of the automobile joyride can't be discounted. And I know I sound like Cam McKenzie talking about the kitchen phone destroying confession or whatever. But it did. And... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, what's wrong with sounding <laughs> like that, right? Right. Um, I mean, it's right. It it went from confession to I'm going to call the pastor real quick on the kitchen phone and then go back to my life. That's these things actually happened. Yeah, it's that time of the quarter. Yeah, we'll be there on Sunday for communion. Right. Okay, Oli, that sounds good. <laughs> and so kids are probably getting more independence. They're getting at least more privacy than they ever had. Yes. And they're getting more freedom to, okay, so let's let's take it out of, hey, we're going to go out and park somewhere, but let's take it to now they can drive into town. They can go to the record store in a way that they couldn't before. The rise of FM radio and local radio comes about at this time as well. And so you get a much more localized form of, of radio communication. And so, okay, you have AM stations, which are going to be much fewer in number. They're going to be much more powerful. But I think that there's something to be said. Okay, so you're hearing Boogie Woogie records coming out of Chicago. Fine. But now you're going to hear it at the local FM station, you know, coming out of Grayson, Kentucky or whatever. And that's a very different feel. Just pick a place. Just off the top of my head. Right. That's that's a very different that's a very different feel hearing hearing Elvis or even Pat Boone coming out of your local FM station. Yeah. And it, and it it also changes what you might mean by a popular culture. The, what is the culture of the people? Well, that is now becoming musically and in many other ways, something that they receive from someone else rather than something that is going to have any connection to themselves. And whether you look at the privatization of music, that it, it moves from public local performance. That's really the way that you can have access to music to technologically making music available to you as you ride in your car or today as you have your AirPods in. Yeah. And we can't discount radio's part and everything we're talking about here. And without, I mean, you know, propaganda or whatever, it just became the voice. I mean, it was the, you know, it was the invisible voice in the air that, that really drove a lot of, of America in a way that film never really could. And in a way that television won't for another generation or two. Right. Radio becomes, you know, the great means of communication. And, and I really do think that that switch to FM affects us in a way that's yet to be written. And it probably has, but it's just the localization of it. FM just doesn't go as far. And so that means you have the rise of the local radio station. You all, you had local AM stations, yes, but not in the numbers you did once, um, you know, once FM uh, comes about. And there are things that are going to survive or flourish on radio that are not really going to make it into TV. Yes. Right. And so is it all Edward Armstrong's fault? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, then, well, and that was, yeah. And that was what a point I meant to make, you know, TV is going to be sanitized in a way that radio isn't. And radio, I mean, it's not Howard Stern at this time. But depending, it really, a lot of it depended less on the FCC and more on your local station manager in those right. days. What What is going to be allowed? 
And and that is a vast difference from TV, which is ascendant during the 50s. So when you begin the 50s, I mean, you, you actually have TV broadcasts at the World's Fair in New York that precedes the first, the Second World War. It's going to take off. It it gets everything gets stalled and delayed as far as consumer tech during the Second World War. When it begins to take off at the beginning of the 1950s, you're looking at 10% of American households have a TV. By the end of the 50s, you're closer to 95% of American households. Well, and it's it's really the first precursor to, yeah, okay, you had black cinema and you had foreign cinema, but you know, today you have basically uh, across all social media platforms and communication platforms, you can find your niche. You can find a, a complete, you know, we only play Joy Division all day yeah, long or whatever. Right. You can find very narrow streams. Well, FM radio allows you to do that. I mean, you have, okay, so we're two hours from Memphis here. So at that time in Memphis, you're going to have black radio stations. You're going to have Jewish radio stations. You're going to have country dedicated stations. Before that, the model was, okay, early in the morning, we're going to play classic music. And then, you know, by the time Saturday night rolls around, we're going to have the Grand Ole Opry on. And things like that, it was it was very much you got if you wanted to hear what you wanted to hear, you had to tune in at the right time. Now you have dedicated platforms for niche audiences. Right. And that's going to lead to a couple of things. One. A broader group having access to, say, black music, for example, but it's also going to lead to. A uh, compartmentalization of communication as well. So before you just had the radio station, now you have the country station, now you have the rock station, now you have the black station, you have this in a way you didn't have that before. And while initially it serves to segregate and to get people over in their groups, it ends up in the long run, as far as radio is concerned, being broad exposure to cultures people wouldn't normally have, which which plays into something that will come out of the 50s. It predates that, I know, as a term. But, okay, 50s, the 50s happens. Within a couple of generations, immigration's opened up again and the myth of the American melting pot. And so rock and roll is going to become one of the chief ex- supposed examples of that. Rock and roll becomes a uniquely American art form, and it's now predominantly seen as some kind of melting pot for different genres and different cultures. And so we're very homogenized in the 50s in a way that we won't be by the time the 90s rolls around, for example. And the genesis of that happens in media beginning in the 50s. It does. And the thing that is going to be so different about TV, and it's one way that your first generation raised on TV, which is the boomers. And you can see that in interpersonal relationships and also comfort with one another, regardless of where they grew up, because they consume the same media. Yeah. They're the first generation that really can do that, can consume a nationalized media. They experimented with all kinds of things in early TV, but it's all... Go ahead. One of the cool things about that is, okay, Bozo the Clown. We think of Bozo as a national brand today, but it's actually sort of franchised out in this era. Every town that has a Bozo program has their own Bozo. It's a different Bozo in every major city that has the program. (laughs) Now, you might have real bozo getting you know piped in but everybody's got the local one it's kind of like ronald mcdonald and and so you still had that local you could have a little rock bozo you could have a denver bozo and and so while you're getting all of this 
corporatization and you're getting this kind of, you will have eventually this sort of stratify, not stratify, but you'll have this homogenized sort of approach to media. In the early days, they don't know what to do with it. So you have this odd mix of local and national. Right. Yeah. Which, which replicates in some ways those networks, radio networks before the second world war and the stuff that's going to get broadcast nationally at first, they try to be very highfalutin. And this is a big debate mm-hmm. at NBC and ABC. It, um, what is it called? Is it Paramount that's still broadcasting? Well, I mean, you still have CBS. Well, CBS. Oh, I'm yeah. talking well, at what time? Very early TV. Oh, TV. Yeah. Yeah. Um, TV. Yeah, yeah. It, they, they try to broadcast, you know, the Metropolitan Opera. Well, nobody wants to watch that. They, yeah. they they eventually realize that what everyone wants to watch is like Westerns. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, okay, so an example of this uh, in early radio, or not early, but uh, radio is the Grand Ole Opry. Yeah. Nashville is not a country music town when the Grand Ole Opry starts. And so the insurance company, whose name I, for whatever reason, I can't think of off the top of my head. So they're, they're doing the Grand Ole Opry and it explodes. And there's all these copycat programs, but it's always the Grand Ole Opry that is the gold standard. Nashville wants to be seen as a new Athens. They don't want this. So the, so the highfalutin people in the Nashville neighborhoods force the radio station to play classical music for a big part of the day because they don't want to be associated with, hick, with hillbilly music. But eventually, business capital drives it. And when you think of Nashville, what do you think of nowadays? Country music, almost exclusively. Maybe Ben Shapiro and the two are related. But he but, lives in Florida, so. He lives in Florida for reasons. Reasons. <laughs> and and so, yeah, it's kind of amazing there where they're like, well, we don't like this. But then they eventually realize, oh, we're making a ton of money on this. So they're going to, in right. by, yeah. it probably takes 10 to 20 years. They drop that and it becomes all country. I find that a very interesting thing. I mean, why does Nashville have a copy of the Parthenon in it. It's not because of the Grand Ole Opry. No, that that was that was a previous era of aspirations. Yeah. Now, think about Minnie Pearl. <laughs> she's 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 a high society lady, and we know her at, from the character that she plays. But she still becomes very much part of the Nashville elite, and she is moving in these high society crowds, and they eventually accept her. But there's still always this kind of sort of begrudging acceptance of that. Is this related to the erosion of American culture? Is this related to, you know, okay, so the 50s, we want to exalt American culture, and we want to be seen as this very great kind of thing. But also coming out of the 50s is we want the rise of the middle class, and we want the rise of an American culture, which becomes tied not with affluence, but with the highest kind of a middle class ideal. And then our pop culture is centered around a very sort of base and simple kind of kind of aesthetic. And the Western would be related to that, right? This rugged, kind of simple form of storytelling and story structure. I mean, it's as simple as good guy wear black, wear white hat, yeah. bad guy wear black hat. So you always know that the good guy is going to win and you know that exactly who everyone is all of the time. And that that creates in the people who watch it and as that's going to be standardized, a certain life attitude that will then govern their personal lives. So when we're talking about the nexus or, okay, how does this design reach people's everyday lives? 
you can look at the internal history of a given studio in Hollywood, California, or you can look at the internal, you know, the, the career of this or that performer, music, whatever. Yeah. And, and we exaggerate the immediate influence of, say, the counterculture in the 60s when they begin to make these movies, say, deconstructing the Western or deconstructing whatever. They're not actually, for, mo- for the most part, huge financial successes. They won't be until the 70s in the eighties and then again in the nineties. And, um, but it, but it begins very quickly it, all the way through the sixties and the early seventies, American media is still very traditional, very, very much. So Gunsmoke is running a very long time. It's and still yeah. doing pretty well. And, and, and there's a reason that, that people in their old age want to watch those things. And it, this is where the, the components of nostalgia, I mean, the one way to think about the 1950s, without trying to turn it into, oh, everyone was secretly depressed and everyone was secretly miserable, is that the sky really was blue, but you have to interpret a blue sky in terms of what else is going to happen that day. So we started out with weather posting, you know, it it's going to be blue sky all day today in Denver, Colorado, because that is where we're at in the year. But there are other times of year where we have lots of blue skies, but it might always rain in the afternoon, especially in the spring. Yeah. So when you're looking at the blue sky, I don't want to deny to somebody who is watching Gunsmoke reruns all day, every day in his nursing home. Why are you talking about my dad like that? <laughs> I, I don't want to deny that there is a certain simple, wonderful quality to those shows, to the way that they present men, you know. But it's interesting that by the time you get nostalgia from this generation and you go back, you know, 20 years ago, roughly, you know, Tony Soprano is nostalgic for Gary Cooper. Yeah. He's not nostalgic for the Wild West. He's nostalgic for Gary Cooper portraying the Wild West. Right. He's nostalgic for a character who's going to show him simple things, simple good, simple evil. Meanwhile, we're nostalgic for Tony Soprano. <laughs> well, that's just garden variety millennial nostalgia for everything before Barack Obama. So my fellow millennials, I'm just telling you, the office is not that good. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, no question at all. Aaron Upoff now on watch. Yeah, he is. I love you, buddy. But I think I it's it's important to say, yes, there was a lot of blue sky. Yeah. That oh, was yeah, that, that was predicated on certain things. The question is not was there blue sky? It's it's what happened later in the day. And we're we're saying that what you're looking at are several oncoming storms that if you were forecasting in the 1950s, you could have seen, or if you were maybe taking a little bit more seriously the an older generation's objection to pop culture developments, you could have seen coming. Like, okay, well, what's gonna happen? Here's your alternative history timeline. What's going to happen if we continue to let people consume media incessantly mm-hmm. that is going to control their minds? What how how is that how is this actually going to turn out if the people who are putting those messages forth let them alter people's entire mindsets? Yeah, and you know, it's always like you know, my millennials on your phones or my, you know, and even, even I, you know, don't understand the Gen Z, like watching three videos at once, you know, overlaid on each other, but, <laughs> but you, you see this in a boomer house. I mean, you, you go into a boomer or the greatest generation, or, you know, the silent generation, whatever's left over from them. Right. The TV is always, yes. always on TV is always on max volume. Yep. 
and they can't live without that. It's like their blanket. Yep. And so they don't realize how, how they've been conditioned by that. Like, yeah, I can't carry my, my TV in my pocket though. Yeah. But you never leave your house and you're, you're just there staring at this thing. And, and yeah. Okay. So does, does it actually all to go back to the automobile? Does it all start there? Is it radios and cars? Is this where this begins? It's certainly TVs in the living room, but it becomes the most single, most powerful tool for three generations for everything we're talking about here, for every bit of CIA propaganda, for every bit of societal conditioning, the box in your living room. Why do fundamentalist Baptists in the 60s think that the TV is related to the book of Revelation and the talking picture? I mean, it, it's not a stretch to see that. It, it Yeah, it's, it's not. And I, I want to just a little caveat for the Lutherans is that our cultural attitude toward Baptists seeing TV in the book of Revelation has been to take their misinterpretation uh, or misapplication most often of particular passages of scripture based on dispensationalism, which is its own form of satanic deception. We have taken that and especially the instincts of average people. So we're not talking just about their interpreters of the scripture or something. We're talking about the attitude of somebody who sees people suddenly staring at a box. And this has never, this has never happened before. This has never happened before. This is like trying to explain to a zoomer what it was like before smartphones, <laughs> right? This has never happened before. And an average person has a basic instinct. I don't want my family to stare at the box. Right. Well, we maybe now, now years later after smartphones understands a certain kind of wisdom, but at the time, we were largely dismissive of those people. And the problem there is that it's 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 almost as if if you don't have some kind of deeply worked out intellectual reason for doing something, we don't respect you. <laughs> yeah. Whereas life is much more instinctual than that. Exactly. Exa you took the words right out of my mouth. Right. So. Be, yeah. Yeah. There needs to be more of an instinctive reaction to something. I don't. And and paradoxically, we become fundamentalists when we when, when we see it the other way. Well, where's the chapter and verse that says I can't put on high heels and watch Sex in the City? <laughs> and I'm, you know, saying that as a man, you know, you, you shouldn't <laughs> right, need. Right. Yeah. yeah, speaking as a proud man, right? Yeah, <laughs> like you shouldn't need chapter and verse for that. You know, in, instinctively, instinctively, as a Christian, you should be able to go. Yeah, no, that's no. Yeah, that's off. Yeah, that's just off. And 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 so yeah, or like you're saying, you know, we also become it becomes passe. We don't want to look like Jack Hiles or somebody. And so, yeah, we're going to, we're going to look exactly like the world for the sake of some sort of worldly respect, which is just fleeting and silly. Yeah. Because the, it, that's always a moving target. And this is what's especially interesting about the growth of pop culture is that you're going to have an institution that, that has in the beginning of the 1950s and through the Korean war, which we haven't mentioned at all, maybe in an unconscious imitation of the way people talk about American history, don't mention the Korean War, the military has immense respect. And it also has immense power, mainly based on its technological prowess, particularly its air power. As we go into the 1960s, you're not going to see that military notably actually fail right at its specifically military tasks that it's going to be assigned increasingly in Southeast Asia. Well, that, I mean, that includes Vietnam by any measurable, any measurable metric, 
for war. We won Vietnam. Yeah. And we're going to make that case in, in future episodes. Yeah. And, of, of... and we'll get it out of the way and we'll repeat it. But people want to talk about Vietnam. And this is a myth. You know, oh, well, Walter Cronkite came on and the, and the public sentiment toward Vietnam, you know, was overwhelmingly negative. Absolutely untrue. Overwhelmingly, Americans wanted the Vietnam War. They wanted to fight communism. It is always a small minority that is pushing back in the way that it's portrayed in modern history or in recent history. And, and, and truly, America today is, is still very pro-military, whether we agree or disagree with that. Right. That's just a fact. Right. Yeah. But how, do, you know, how does any of that change or how, yeah. how does that get managed such that we can leave all of those young men in Vietnam? Yeah. Either either missing or dead, but then you know just 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 let all of that happen and and pull out. Well, the way that you do that is through management of pop culture. Yeah, that's how absolutely. You do it. And and it comes about through, you know, it's kind of two ways in pop culture, and we'll talk about it in detail. But even up to Vietnam, you have John Wayne making you know his pro Vietnam movie, and you have you know, shows glorifying it. But then you also have the ones, you you know, later on post-Vietnam, you're going to have Apocalypse Now. But that's that's not really going to translate into let's go find, let, let's go support these veterans. It's going to translate into the modern version of social action, which is I watched a movie about this, so I'm I'm, I'm in solidarity with them. Yeah. That's all I needed to do. Right. I'm in, so, yeah, you're going to, you, you can easily move from a pop culture that has now become technologically dominant in its own country of origin. And then as we'll talk about is being exported. That's, that's what America exports, even as we deindustrialize is rock and roll music, you know, blue jeans, et cetera. Yeah. The East Germans can testify to all these things. I mean, as I'm that, glad we gave the world a hamburger, but <laughs> they didn't, they weren't worthy of it though. Right. We were but, taking it back. That's yeah. the new goal. You can't have that now, <laughs> but I've seen what you've done to it. <laughs> what 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 this dominance of pop culture is going to lend itself to is a kind of soft Marxism, mm. which will then define what it means to be an intelligent American, at least certainly by our time, meaning that the exercise in which you most often engage is consciousness raising. Yeah. And that you have to have the correct consciousness about a wide variety of issues. This is where we'll get by the 70s and then, you know, note how similar the 70s are to our own time right now in 2020s. But what we're looking at is, okay, we're going to give you a certain amount of time of white hats versus black hats. We're going to give you a certain amount of gun smoke viewing, and then that can be syndicated indefinitely as you age. But what we're really going to aim news media mm -hmm. and other forms of entertainment at is ultimately going to be changing your mind such that the psychological warfare that we learn to practice perhaps first on the Japanese or the Germans or whatever will through our own pop culture be practiced on us. Yeah. And then we will go in whatever direction that leads us. Yeah. And this is unquestionably by design. This didn't happen by accident. And it, and it happens in very simple things. Like, does it begin in some shady back room somewhere where some operatives are like, okay, this is where we're going to steer the country? Yeah, sure. But it, it comes about unbeknownst to Americans. So, okay, you're you're in a radio station and you're a CBS News affiliate. What does that mean? You're not a CBS station, but it means that on your news ticker, you're going to get all of the CBS releases or Associated Press or whatever. 
And so every local radio station is reading the exact same news copy. So the news can come from all of these very small sources, but it has this big network of tentacles reaching out to local America. And it's going to be very effective. And it's still that way today. It's funny, you know, you see the, and, and I, this is, you know, I, I live this life as a radio guy. So I read the CBS or the AP wires, you know, for hours a day on the air. And so you see people who are just now waking up to this and they're got the YouTube montages where all these different TV stations are reading the exact same copy. And I'm like, did you guys not realize that's how it was? You know, this was, they weren't hiding this. We contracted for it. We signed up for it. We know exactly what we're doing. Not that we're, we know exactly that we're propaganda outposts, but we can't write our own news. So this is just a common practice that people are only recently waking up to. But it's been so powerful for the dissemination of certain ideologies, uh, certain talking points, things like that, all by design, all intentional, and, and all really very powerful to this day. Maybe less so than it used to be, though. Well, I think a lot of that gets mapped, and and this has been now made into, to some degree on the right, a talking point that gets mapped onto the Frankfurt School, which it, which aims to obliterate the nuclear family because it is a threat to whatever it is that they're trying to build, whether it's Jewish ethnic in, in-group interests, right. in the case of the guys involved, Adorno, Horkheimer, et cetera, or whether it is their vision of a, a liberal democracy, which we have to own up to this, is not just a Jewish vision of the world. It's also the vision of the dominant Anglo-Saxon ruling class of America, of the UK after the Second yeah. World War. Well, and while uh, most of this is undoubtedly by design, there's also still a bit of serendipity to it that it comes about at the right time. Technology rises at the right time. Yeah, serendipity makes it sound like I'm saying, oh, it was just an accident. No, I mean, there are, yeah. you know, aerial forces at work here, if you understand what I'm saying in the Ephesians sense. Right. But yeah. it, it, what we're talking about had to have happened when it happened. It, it it was the time was right. The technology was right. The American conscience is where it's at. And so it sort of had to be that way at that time. And, you know, they were able to flip the switch. They were able to flip the switch on this, on, on things they've been working toward that they couldn't, they couldn't have done this in the twenties and thirties the way they did in the fifties and sixties. Yeah. And I, I think to see it as aerial powers, powers and principalities making war upon us Yes, is not to say that there are no human interests or human groups involved. We're not, we're not shy about that. The point is to understand that when we're telling this history, we're not telling merely a history of various interest groups such that if you appealed to the right groups or put the correct groups in power, you would somehow expel the demons that are obviously abroad in the land. The reason that these things have to be fought with the word of God is because they are not merely temporal matters. And whether you love to keep temporal matters as far apart from the kingdom of God as you possibly can, you're not really going to be able to do that once you realize that if you just got rid of your TV, you would probably have a completely different approach to life. Insert whatever technology you want to insert whatever social programming you want to, if it went away, it's just a temporal matter, or it's just a talking <laughs> right. box, or it's just whatever, 
Well, if you changed your daily life, also your spiritual life would be radically changed. And the way that our own people's spiritual lives were radically changed was through the way that first the Second World War and then all of the things that came out of that, that flowed out of that, the methods of communication, the mm -hmm. programs, they were all of that. That's what changed them. That's why your grandparents are so different from their grandparents. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple minutes here, um, just kind of set up where we're going to go from here. You know, we it's so hard not to immediately start taking the different streams on these because there's just so much to talk about. So what we're going to do is focus next on some of the, at that time, late 50s, early 1960s, subterranean cultural influences that would then blossom into the hippies but were called earlier beats or other things like that and how definitive parts of that movement especially drug use of various kinds was both supported by but also influential upon the harder forms of power that we mentioned earlier, the military, congressional, industrial complex. We we should probably also insert educational complex because Stanford University is going to play into this in a big way. After that, we'll go back into harder power and talk about Vietnam. But what we always want to do is connect the, the changes in daily life, their sources, to the various very public very hard power changes in our military positioning or our political situation domestically, that those things don't come out of nowhere. So we're saying that we want to understand how Allen Ginsberg plays into, you know, the the resignation of Richard Nixon, because the case that we're making is that without an America that has and tolerates and and has promoted to it an Allen Ginsberg or a Jack Kerouac, or a Ken Kesey, who ha who has all of these threads connected basically in his own life, you don't have an America that accepts the resignation of Richard Nixon, per se. Because if you don't have a 1950s where everyone begins to look at the box, you also don't have an America that takes the Watergate break-in, which has many parallels we'll talk about, that don't get prosecuted and nobody remembers. Nobody's going to take that seriously unless they already believe that what they see in front of their eyes on the nightly news is in fact true. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there you have it, folks. Sinister 60s uh, coming up. This has been a brief history of power. Thanks for listening, and you know where to find us. Discernment, boldness, and compassion, Christian virtues sorely needed today. The Biblical Worldview Conference Chicago can help Christians and families for such a time as this. Brian Wolfmiller, John Bombaro, and others will address gender-solid parenting, wokeism in schools, transgender pronouns, and confessing and sharing Christ in a woke culture. All this Saturday, November 4th. Go to worldviewchicago.org to find out more.